Amen. Now, to follow up on Bill's questions, one other question he didn't ask. Who isn't particularly cheering for a particular team, but they want to see a good game? There we go. (laughs) You're for Jesus. (laughs) There we go. (laughs) You got support in that one. All right. Well, we're going to turn back to the book of James again this morning. And as we have been looking at the book of James, as we have started this, James is writing to Jewish Christians who have been dispersed overwhelmingly as this journey has begun. These are people that had come to Jerusalem. They had made decisions for Jesus. And then as persecution and hardship began to really surface in Jerusalem, many of them were pushed out and driven out of the Jerusalem area back to some of the home territory. But some of the persecution did not stop. Some of the harassment and difficulty did not stop. And so they are wrestling through issues of life and they have questions. Again, just as we have as a Christian, we're looking forward to Jesus coming again. And as we now at this point, in history, we can look and we can read from Matthew to Revelation. We can see the whole story of the things that are happening in the New Testament. We have a pretty good idea as to at least some of the things that God is doing. We also know that we already knew that, and I'm sure that they understood this as well, that God wins at the end. And so we wrestle through all those things, but we also know that ultimately our eyes are not fixed on the here and now. Our eyes are fixed on eternity. But the, right, the readers here didn't have all of the information that we have. They didn't have the books to go to. They didn't have the letters to go to. And yes, now the advantage they had is that many of them sat under the teaching of the disciples. But in some ways, while the disciples sat at the feet of Jesus and were learning, there's still a lot that they were still figuring out as well as they were thinking about the, the expanding of the church and the moving of the church and the things that Jesus was doing, in some ways they were caught just as off guard with what God's plan was because they had the same expectations as they did of who the Messiah was going to be. And Jesus didn't full, fulfill anybody's expectations. As Messiah, Jesus came and he was doing something radically different than what all of the Jewish community was expecting Messiah to do. No one was expecting Messiah to come and die on the cross. They had totally different expectations. And so James is writing this letter, and as they are wrestling through and struggling through things, he's writing this letter and saying, guys, you're struggling. Let me just share a few things with you that will be really helpful. Now, some of these things are kind of introductory, and Oftentimes, when one thing is said, do we need to come back and say it again? Yes, you're saying. And I'm thinking no. Okay, isn't that fun, the way each of us thinks? So, but James is writing these things, and so because James has written these things, and because James has communicated all of these things, as the other writers write, they don't necessarily have to cover all of this territory, because now it's already been covered. James has already written, and he's already talked about these things. He's already explained some of these things, and these letters are kind of like chain letters that started to circulate through the community and start to circulate through other churches, and those that received this... I'm sure that this is not just one letter written because the Jewish community was dispersed to many different areas. This was probably a letter that was written, copies made, a a copy is sent to this community, a copy is sent to that community, another copy is sent to that community. Guys, I just want to kind of give you an idea of the things that are going on. And then everyone in that community got it. Oh, good, love it, got to read it. And they sit down and they enjoy reading it, they enjoy sucking up and, and, and absorbing the things that are going on. They, they made copies and they said, hey, well, we have someone in the next town who've made a decision for Jesus too. We should share this with them. And so they write it all down. They copy it all down. Hey, we got this letter. We want to give you a copy of the letter that we got from James so you can have a copy of the letter that we got from James. And they're not the only ones doing it. So these letters start to circulate out and people start to get different copies of the letters. And so as this starts to go out, not all the things that James is talking about needs to be repeated in the other letters that other people write. Because James has already covered these things. That's how come when you're in, when you remember those days, some of you, you're, you're there. It's, it's closer and more recent. Others, more distant history. But remember those days when we were in school and we had 
Simple math. And after we got simple math, we learned to add and subtract, and we learned to multiply and divide. We then found ourselves in high school. And some of us maybe had the joy of sitting down in in algebra class or geometry class or trigonometry class. What's interesting is you go into those classes, the teacher doesn't come in and start out the class with, okay, everyone, I want you to look up at the board. I'm going to teach you some basic things here that, you, that I want you to understand as we do this class. And then she doesn't start with, or he doesn't start with, one plus one equals two. The assumption is you already know that. But he's covering basic things, significant things that they want us to know and understand. And so we're going to look at some of these significant things today as well. We're going to pick up and we're going to look at verses 12 to 18. So let's read through that this morning and then we'll have a word of prayer and jump back into it. It says, Blessed is the one who endures trials because, excuse me, I started at verse 13. I apologize for that. They're back there going like, what the heck is he doing? That's not on the slide. Okay, no one undergoing a trial should say, I am being tempted by God, since God is not tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. Each person is tempted when he is drawn away and enticed by his own evil desire. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and when sin is full grown, it gives birth to death. Do not be deceived, my dear brothers and sisters. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. By his own choice, he gives us birth by the word of truth, so that we would be the kind of first fruits of his creatures. Let's pray together. Fathers, we take some time to look at your word, and as we have some fun wrestling through it, Lord, I just ask that you would guide our time, build into us the character and the substance of Jesus. Father, I ask these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Now, I want us to start to focus in on this first verse, verse 13. It says, No one undergoing a trial should say, I am being tempted by God, since God is not tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. Now, if I think of this, I go back to what we talked about a couple weeks ago, up in verses 2, 3, and 4. So let me read that, and it should be on the screen. It says, consider it great joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you experience various trials, because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its full effect so that you may be mature and complete, lacking nothing. Now, for fun today, we're going to have a pop quiz. I'm going to see how you do. You ready? So if you want to write some of these things down, you can use the notes as we talked about. You can use this side or that side, whichever you want to do. But here's, here's a pop quiz. What are the first five books of the Old Testament? Don't have to say it out loud. What are the first five books of the Old Testament? I'll give you a hint. The first one is Genesis. All right, now how about the next one? Now, this one's going to be a little trickier. What book comes right before Revelation? Don't say it out loud. We're not going to do that. Just, Just write it down. What book comes right before Revelation? Okay. Now, here's this one should be super easy. Okay. What book follows Habakkuk? (laughs) Come on, what book follows Habakkuk? Don't write it down. Don't say it out loud. Okay. What five books do we call the Pentateuch? Don't answer that out loud. We have two more questions. Who wrote the book of Acts? Now, one more. 
Name four disciples, but you cannot name and use Peter, James or John, the sons of Zebedee, Matthew, Thomas, or Judas. So I gave you six. Of the remaining six, name four. Come on, one of them should be super, super easy. Do everyone remember what my name is? <laughs> so, that, okay, that gives you one. Now, here's the fun part. So, you just had a test. Or you just had a trial. Now, how, often, how many of you were tempted to say, I need to go, go look it up? Or... What did he write down? Or what did she write down? Now that's when we start to what? What? Cheating, that's right. That's when we start to cheat. Now when I talked about this a couple weeks ago, I talked about how I hate running. And when we ran cross country, we would start the season out and Mr. Drummond for the first week at least would put us on the cross country course and he would make us run. And again, as we talked about this, at the end of that course was the big hill. Now, the great thing is you come to that hill, it was a short big hill and then you have a long downhill and then a mile hilled up. But that one hill was a killer because you've just run five or six miles. You've got to run up that stupid hill. And, it's, and I wish I was exaggerating, but it's kind of like this. And at that point in time, your legs are all rubber. You haven't, you're way out of shape and you don't want to go up that hill at all. Now, I've known what a number of the other people on the cross-country team did. Excuse me, track team. Some ran a different route so they didn't have to run up the hill. Some periodically would see a car coming and would flag it down. It would get a lift up to the top of the hill. If you were... In preparatory mode, you might have talked to some of your friends to meet you there. Or you might have sequestered something at the bottom of the hill like a golf cart to take you up and down and then drop it off before Mr. Drummond sees it so that you can come back looking fresh as a daisy. I did it. But all of that is cheating. Now just come back and look at this for a second. Because we're we're in verses... 2, 3, and 4. He says, Consider it great joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you experience various trials, because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance. So the challenge of the test is that the test tests what you know, it tests what you understand, it tests where your abilities are, it tests where you reside at this moment in time. It's a check to see what you have accomplished. It's a check to see how healthy you are. It's a check to see what you've memorized. But then as you wrestle through that process, or also as you walk this journey as a Christian, you go through this test, and it says, okay, anyone go to work a business, and you show up at work, and you come up with tools, and you... Put, you put a test on something, you might test a wall, test a wall to see does it hold up the, is it going to hold the cabinets? Where are the studs? I got to find the studs. You find the different things. You go to your mechanic, my car is making weird noises. What do they do? They run it through a period, a series of tests. They, they put things on it and they run tests and they try to find out what is broken, what is healthy. The whole idea of taking the test is to find out how I'm doing and where I need to continue to grow, but it also identifies those areas where I'm strong, those areas where I'm healthy, and those areas where I am flourishing. And when we run the test, the process also, if we continue to do that, so if I were to come back to you next week and I were to come back with these same questions, you'd probably go home, you'd, you, and I tell you, next week we're going to come back and ask these same questions. You would come to me afterward and say, Andrew, can you give me those questions again? 
I want to I have those questions so that when you ask me again next week, I know the answer. Now, that's not cheating. You've just been tested. You've just been given a quiz. You realize that you don't know some of the things you thought maybe you would know. And so you're saying, okay, no, i gotta, I got to memorize those things or i got to learn those things. By the way, the book that comes right after Habakkuk is Zephaniah, just in case you were curious on that one. Okay? And so... So you, you look at that kind of stuff and you say, okay, I want to re- learn that so I can understand all that and memorize that stuff so I'm ready next time. That's the purpose of testing. It lets us know what we're missing, where we're lacking, so that we can continue to grow. And again, he comes back to this stuff. Consider pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you experience various trials, because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance. So it not only measures what it, but the good news is it also builds into us so that as we continue this journey, we become better and better and better at what it is we are doing as followers of Jesus. We become more and more complete. We grow, become stronger and stronger and stronger. But it's not done there. And let endurance have its full effect so that you may be mature and complete, lacking nothing. So if we allow the testing process that God is doing in our lives, the end goal is that we become more and more and more and more like Jesus in our journey. And the goal then also is at one point in time you have the test, but later on you're going to get the test again, and you will fly it with passing colors. So the kid in first grade who starts out with basic math and doesn't pass the test too well, now is in high school, he's taking trigonometry, and he gets that same test that he was given when he was in first grade. He's going to blow right through that test, and he's going to get 100%. Why? Because he has now, at this point in his life, he has mastered basic math. He has mastered 1 plus 1 and 2 plus 2 and 3 times 3. He's mastered that. He doesn't need to worry about that anymore because he has mastered that. And that's part of the journey that's going on with the Christian. And that's part of the challenge of the trials they are facing. Now, here's the kicker. Go back to verse 13. No one understanding a trial should say, I am being tempted by God, since God is not tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. God allows trials. God allows tests. He does that for our good. He does that so that we can continue to see those areas where we need to grow so that we can become complete and mature, lacking nothing. But how many people in your life, in your sphere of influence, over the years when they had a test, didn't see the test as an opportunity to measure what they have and have not mastered, but rather looked at the test as an opportunity to cheat. So every time the teacher came to school and was time for a a test, was the teacher saying to the class, I am tempting you to cheat? No. We would recognize that the automatic assumption is not that the teacher is there saying, okay, everybody, I am teaching you today the importance of cheating. I am teaching you today the the value system of how to short-circuit the evaluation process so you won't have a clue as to what you need to continue to develop so that you can continue to grow and understand and master the things that I'm teaching you. No, the teacher is there trying to measure and test what they have mastered, what they have understood, so that they continue the learning process. And the test, when it is handed back, I had a teacher one day, she hated my brother. Hated my brother. She hands the test back to me. I aced it. And she says, I hate to give this to you. Don't you love that learning experience? That's not the kind of learning experience we live with with God. God. God would give us back 100. He would give us high fives, joy. But usually we don't get hundreds back. At least I never usually got hundreds back. Maybe you're different than I am. I usually did not get hundreds back. I usually had something less than a hundred. 
What did that identify? It identified opportunities for growth. It identified opportunities for learning. It did not identify opportunities to cheat. Now on the other side of the scale. I took Latin in high school. I went to a New York State school, and in New York State, you have the Regents exam. And so when you take a Regents exam, not only do you have the opportunity to graduate with a school recognition, but if you pass the Regents exams, you also get a state recognition of having passed a certain level of criteria. And so not only do you get the local high school diploma, but you also get a Regents diploma. Now, to get a Regents Diploma, they, you would have to take a class that they call, like, like a, like a three-level class, you take one after the other, and Latin was one of those classes. And so, just after the third year, you would take the Regents exam. Now, if you spent much time with me, you would come to understand that I am terrible at language. I've studied many languages at this point over my life, probably five or six different languages at this point in my life. I am terrible at all of them. And I still remember as I sat down for the regent's exam, and Mr. DiPolito, who was now long gone, walked through the class as we were there, looked over our shoulders, and touched the answer's that we're wrong. Don't you love that? He saw the regents exam as an opportunity to cheat. Now I will say this. I passed the regents exam with a 66. (laughs) Now, we look at that whole thing. And we come to these various tests and trials that God gives us. And we can ask the question, is is God allowing these tests and trials to help us to see where we are in our journey to figure out how to grow and to develop? Or do we say that God gives me these trials, therefore I now need to cheat in them to succeed? See, here's the issue in this whole thing. One of the things we don't understand, at least early on in our journey, is the difference between what we see as success and victory versus what God sees as success and victory. Now, the great example of that is Jesus as he's before before Pilate and as he was before Herod and the Sanhedrin as well. We would look at that whole scenario. We would look at that whole, whole series of events. And, and, and for us, if we were in that, we would probably naturally be inclined to say the objective and the goal here is to get out and to get away. The objective here is to get out of captivity. The objective is to have them release us so we can hit the hills. And not be found for a really long time. But that was not Jesus' objective. In the trials that we face, we have a tendency to assume that having things work out well for us, or having having things go in a positive way is ultimately the objective. Therefore, when we are in a trial, that's when we're inclined to cheat. To manipulate the process to get the outcome that we think should be the outcome. Instead of achieving and seeking the outcome that God wants us to accomplish. Now, in spelling, I'm horrible at spelling as well. But my favorite one is my brother's spelling story. My brother Paul was also a terrible speller. So one day the teacher decided to help him. And so on the quiz, she put the color brown on the quiz. He got it wrong. Okay? We were all creative spellers. All of us were creative spellers. Well, we thought that 
I mean, I, oh my goodness, when I got a computer and it, and it had spell check, can I tell you, it was such a good day in life. So good. You know, you look at those little red underlines and words when you work on your computer, and you, you might find them annoying, but for the last tw- almost 30 years now, they have been glorious. I guess 35 years, it has been glorious to see them for me because I'm so bad at spelling stuff. Okay? Now, I'm fine with how I spell. I get it. I can read how I spell. I know what I mean. <laughs> but it's wrong often. Okay? So I don't pass the test. But God is not looking, and others are not looking for my creative solution. We're looking for the correct solution. And God is looking not for my creative solution to the test or trial he's allowing me to walk through. He's looking to see how I process through that trial in a way that brings him glory. He's looking to see how I go through that trial in a way that reflects the character and integrity he's seeking to build into my life that reflects who he is and the various things that he's trying to accomplish in my life. And so as we go through these trials, because things are not going well, because we're not getting the outcomes that we want, because we're not achieving the things that we desire, we cheat. And therefore we seek to find the outcome that makes us happy. We seek to find the outcome that brings about the results that we want instead of seeking the things that God wants. And we say, God, it's not fair. You're giving me a test and you're forcing me to cheat. No, I'm not forcing you to cheat. When I took my Latin exam, when I took the Regents exam, I did not go into the Latin class with things on my wrists, secret papers hidden up my sleeves. I did not go into that exam expecting and planning to cheat. I was hoping I was going to pass, figuring I probably wouldn't and I would have to take it again. I certainly wasn't expecting my teacher to cheat. The test was not there to see if I cheated. The test was there to measure my knowledge of Latin, as flawed as it was. And we come back to this whole thing in verse 13. No one undergoing a trial should say, I am being tempted by God, since God is not tempted by evil, and he does not tempt anyone. Why would God tempt us with the very things that are against his nature? Why would God dangle ideas in our brain and encourage us to do things that are exactly opposite and opposed to the very character and nature of who he is? Why would God put us in a situation where we are called to tell the truth and he would whisper in our ear, lie? Why would he do that? He wouldn't. He's expecting us to tell the truth. I had someone confront me on something once. It was really kind of entertaining after the fact. I'd done something stupid. I was getting called out on it. And as they came into that conversation, they called me out in front of the group of people we were with, and they fully expected me to lie. And without blinking an eye, I just told the truth. And they were totally unprepared for the fact that I was going to tell the truth. They were totally expecting me to lie. And their whole argument and the whole thing that they were seeking to accomplish just fell apart in their hands because you're expecting me to lie. Why would God place us in settings and situations that test us to see where we are in our journey and to help us to figure out what we need to continue to develop and and to grow in so that we can continue that journey of becoming complete and mature, not lacking anything in Christ? Why would he put us in those situations and then say to us, cheat, sin, Break the rules. That's totally opposite of what God is seeking to accomplish. 
Because God does not tempt us with sin. God does not tempt us with bad behavior. God does not tempt us with poor choices. He does not do that. Now we're told now in verse 14 where that comes. But each person is tempted when he is drawn away and enticed by his own evil desire. Now, man, this really changes the meaning of evil for many of us. Because we're placed in a situation and we have done something and we're being asked a question, kind of like the situation I was in. Did you? Well, yes, I did. The evil desire is to say, no, I didn't. That's the evil desire. Now, we wrestle through this whole thing, and it starts to change also the definition of evil for us. Because we think of evil as these horribly pernicious, vile things that people do. Those things that people do that we want nothing to do with. We want them as far away from us. You know, these are the, these are the, the rapists and the murderers and the, all those terrible people that we read about on, in, in the newspaper that they talk about in the evening news. Those are the people, we, we don't want anything to do with them. Those are the evil people. But evil desires are those things that motivate us to cheat in the journey of life, to sidestep and to sidetrack the things that God is doing to help us to become more and more complete in Christ. Those are the things that we, we use to kind of cheat in the journey of life to get our outcomes instead of God's outcomes. See, evil is that stuff that we use to kind of avoid those things that we think are uncomfortable or those situations we want to not have anything to do with because someone's going to put us on the spot. Are you really a Christian? You, you, you don't, we don't want to, I don't want to talk a whole lot about that stuff, you know, because, you know, then you're going to give me a hard time and I'm going to get harassed and I'm just going to keep on down low. Well, but God has put us there to have a voice for him and to represent him. And so the, the wanting to have it easy and, and have it all just flow instead of having hard questions or challenging questions, the, choose, the choice to avoid and to evade, that's an evil desire, not a righteous desire. And the word evil is sitting there as a term defining that desire. It starts to change what we think of as evil. Because evil is that stuff which starts to move us away from who God is. And we can kind of, by the way, ever, everyone ever hear the word white lie? Come on, if you wave at me, you heard you hear the term white lie? Keep, okay, now put everyone, put your hand up. Put your hand up. Everyone put your hand up, come on. If your hand is up, you probably told a white lie. <laughs> now, that's not a white lie. That's a wicked, evil lie. See, it's not good stuff. That's bad stuff. Because it flows from those desires inside of us to evade, to avoid, to not be put on the spot. It's evil. And we, we find ourselves in situations where we're tested, and it's not the tester's objective that we cheat. The tester's objective is to help measure where we are so that we can continue our journey of growth. The objective is not that we short-circuit the process of growth by cheating. The objective is to help us to continue to grow. But the desire to cheat flows from within ourselves. It doesn't come from God because we don't like the outcomes sometimes of the test. And the people that were now being tested, they were being tested because of their faith for Jesus. They were being tested by losing jobs. Some people were being arrested. Some people were being harassed. And they were saying, well, I don't want to be arrested. I don't want to lose my job. I don't want to be harassed. So I'm going to use a different response. I'm going to say different things about my relationship with Jesus than what I probably should say because I don't want to be harassed. I don't want, and, no, and so they fail the test and they avoid the test with an evil desire because they don't want to have difficulty and hardship or problems because of their relationship with Jesus. They fail the test. But they do it by cheating because of an evil desire inside of them that wants to avoid the consequences of a relationship with Jesus.
It says, tells you the outcome. That after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and when it is fully grown, it gives birth to death. See, sin kills us. When, when Satan showed up in the garden, as talking through the serpent, and he said, didn't God give you everything to eat? Isn't everything here for you? And when she looked at the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and he, he said, surely you won't die, would you, if you ate some of that fruit? I mean, doesn't it look good? Do you think God would really kill you? Come on, live a little. Experience life. Don't you want to gain knowledge and understanding? Don't you want your horizons to be expanded? Don't you want your understanding to grow? Don't you want to think beyond just this garden? Don't you want all of these things, Eve? I mean, think about it. Eve, God is kind of holding you back. He's tamping you down. He's limiting the opportunities and options that are in front of you. He wants you to stay ignorant. He wants you to stay uninformed. Eve, he's put this tree here to tempt you. He hasn't put this tree here, Eve, to test you. He's put it here to tempt you. What kind of God is that? Eve, you should just have a little bite. It won't hurt you. All that is a lie. And the end result, it killed her. She didn't die that moment. But someone who was, didn't have the clock running after she ate had the clock running. Sin entered the picture, destroyed her life, destroyed everything. We look at these things, we look at these ways we will cheat or ways we will avoid the test or we will avoid the trial. But when we do that and we're avoiding the test or we're avoiding the trial, we're often chasing it out of a place to avoid the hardship and difficulty that comes with being associated with Jesus and connected with Jesus. It doesn't lead to life. It leads to death. And yet Jesus died to give us life. And again, this is one of those things we don't often really think about. Because when Jesus came and he died on the cross, we think about the forgiveness of sin and we, we think about how he has given us eternal life. And oftentimes we just think of the context of, I'm going to die and I'm going to go to heaven and I'm going to live there forever. When in reality, Jesus is not just interested in knowing, in knowing abundant life in eternity. Jesus also wants us to know an abundant life in the here and now. To know what it means to live with peace and with joy and with fulfillment and, and, and with satisfaction, with amazing things going on in our lives. He didn't necessarily promise that it would be easy. He didn't promise that we would always be happy. He promised there would be joy. Joy is very different than happiness. Happiness is based upon the circumstances. Joy looks beyond the circumstances and sees the promises and the hope that exists and grabs a hold of all of that stuff. And that joy, I would also say, is much better than happiness because we're happiness ebbs and flows, joy transcends. But Jesus has come to give us life in the here and now as well as in eternity, to live with peace, to live with contentment, to be able to go to sleep at night and have the insides of us at, calmed and, and, and at peace and not laying in bed at night, beating ourselves up because the things happened here, or because things happened there, or because I said this or because I did that. He wants us to have peace all over the, the various aspects of our lives, internally and externally. Death comes from sin. Life comes from Jesus. But sin lies about it. He continues. Go down to verse fourteen or, uh, 16. It says, Do not be deceived, brothers and sisters. Now, I love this when it happens in my house. I'll say to one of my boys, maybe this happens in your house, please stop, fill in the blank behind that. Please stop taking the fridge out of, the the milk out of the fridge and just leave it on the counter. Please stop. I'll I'll just leave it there. Okay? And the milk 
is sitting on a counter. Please stop. I'm not doing that. And I say, though, the thing that invariably comes after me, after this statement for me, you know, I'm doing my dad thing. He says, I'm not saying stop because it's not going on. Okay? I'm telling you to stop because it's going on. So please stop. Now, when James writes, my dear brothers and sisters, no, for, let me, I'm in the wrong spot. Let me find verse 16. Do not be deceived, my brothers and sisters. He's not saying do not be deceived because they're all doing great. I can see a bunch of them reading that and going, but James, I'm not being deceived. I'm understanding it all really good. And he comes back, he says, I'm not saying don't be deceived because you're not being deceived. I'm saying don't be deceived because you are being deceived. Stop. Think. He's not saying it because it's not going on. He's telling them this because it absolutely is going on. They're continuing to listen to that voice that whispers on the inside of them. In our culture today, they say to us again and again and again and again and again, Listen to the inner voice. That is the voice of who you really are. And if you listen to the inner voice of who you really are, it will lead you to where you need to be, and it will never lie to you. Hogwash! It's going to lie to you all the time. You need to listen to truth. And because our sin nature, we are inclined to lie to ourselves all the time. Because we want life to be easy. We want life to be comfortable. We want life to be convenient. We don't want to face trials and temptations. No, not trials and temptations. We don't want to face trials and struggles. We don't. We want often the easy way out. We want things to go smooth. We want things to live on this, you know, this ascending pathway of life. We don't want the ups and downs. We, incline, we are inclined to lie to ourselves. Do not be deceived, my brothers and sisters. That lie, that whisper in your ear that you don't need to do the things that God is prodding you to do, but do something else, it is a lie. And here's the... Continuation, every good and perfect gift comes from above, coming down from the Father of lights who does not change like shifting shadows. The good stuff. The really good stuff. That's the stuff you get from God. If you really want the good stuff of life, it comes from God. It doesn't come from the things that our world keeps on telling you makes life really good. See, every good and perfect gift is from above. It's coming from the Father. And you need to understand something. He does not change like shifting shadows. Any of you have this kind of situation where you live? where you have parts of your house and parts of your property around your house, where you have sunshine at some parts of your day and shadow in other parts of your day. And we expect that, don't we? We expect that because as the sun comes up, the sun moves along, and the shadows change. You know, when you, when you garden, you think about this, right? You say, okay, i got to find where the sun kind of hits in the morning, where it kind of stays the longest because I want the things in my garden to get the best sun. And sometimes you have some things that need a little bit of sun, but don't need a lot of sun. So you plant those things in those areas that maybe have some of the sun, some of the sun initially in the morning, but then as the sun moves during the day, they land in shadow. And so they still get the, the warmth of the day. They have a little bit of sun, but they don't get scorched. We are used to shadows moving and shifting in our day. God doesn't shift. 
when we talk to him about things today in the morning, he's going to give us the same answers this evening at night or next week or a year from now. The answers don't change. Now, the application might change because our circumstances might be different, but the answers don't change. We have so much situational ethic built into our makeup in our world today. It flows from sin. That's not based upon situational ethics. He doesn't do that. There's no shadows. There's no a little bit here today and then it's over here tomorrow. He's consistent all the time. One more statement he makes and then we'll wrap it up for today. But verse 18 makes this really cool statement. By his own choice, he gave us birth by the word of truth so that we would be kind of a, a kind of first fruits of his creatures. See, God wants what's best for us. And here's what's really interesting. I love what he's saying here. By his own choice, he gave us birth. I remember when I was 14 years old when I made a decision to put my faith and trust in Jesus. <clears throat> I was in a, in a meeting that was taking place and I was being told, listen, you need... He was The speaker wasn't saying, Andrew, you may need to make a decision. I was too many people there for him to say, Andrew, you need to make a decision. But that's basically what he's saying. He's saying to each one of us, you need to make a decision today. What are you going to do with Jesus? What are you going to do with Jesus? What are you going to do with Jesus? And that day when I was 16, I made a decision to put my trust in Jesus. See, I made a decision. I made a choice to put my faith and trust in Jesus and to trust Jesus to give forgiveness of sin in my life. And I recognize also that he saved me forever at that point in time. But at that moment in time, I put my trust in Jesus and I'd been, I just shared some of this with you guys before, but I was up to that point, I was trusting being a good person, being a good kid. And I said, okay, I got to stop trusting those religious things. I got to stop resting on the fact that I'm well-connected, but Grandpa's a minister and we go to church. I got to stop trusting those things. I need to put all those things aside. I recognize that those things don't save me. And I needed to trust Jesus. And so that day I said, I'm putting all this stuff aside. I'm not going to trust any of that other stuff, God, to make me right before you. I recognize that Jesus came. He died on the cross, took my sin. So today I'm going to accept that forgiveness of sin. I'm going to put my trust in Jesus and in Jesus alone. And here's what's really cool when we look at this verse. When I was 14, I made a choice to put my trust in Jesus. But that day when I was 14, Jesus also chose me. You see what it says there? By his own choice, he gave us birth by the word of truth. See, that day, not only was I choosing Jesus, but he was saying, I also choose you, Andrew. And see, God wants to do things in our lives. And, and it's not just a one-way street. There's a back and forth that's going on here. God is interacting with us. And on that day when I made a decision for Jesus, it wasn't just me choosing to respond to Jesus. Jesus is also reaching down and grabbing my hand. There was a two-way event going on. An event going on between me and God. God was choosing just as I was choosing. Now, God's desire, he says here, he's talking to them right now, says, so that, the, so that we would be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. And here's what's fun about first fruits. First fruits are the first things that come in during the season. Now, in the old, people in the Old Testament totally get this. And so as he's writing to the Hebrew community, as he's writing to Jews that are spread around the area, followers of Jesus who, who are Jewish, who 
who are wrestling, they, they get the whole idea of first fruits, and God wanted a first fruits offering. And so in Jewish tradition, they would have the first fruits offering or first fruit sacrifice. And so the first apples that came from the tree or the, the first piece ears of corn that came out of the cornfield or the first set of berries that came from the bushes, those things were gifts that were given back to the God anticipating more of the harvest coming in. And he's writing and saying, listen, guys, I want you to understand that you're also a first fruit. God's anticipating more of a harvest, more people to respond to Jesus than just you. You're just the beginning of the journey. And here we are 2,000 years later. A church family where people have come to know Jesus as their Savior and a church family where we also invite people to have a relationship with Jesus because Jesus also wants others to embrace him and walk with him. See, the journey continues. See, the journey that God is working, the things that God is seeking to accomplish, he is seeking to measure us and test us so that we continue to grow, so that we can become complete and mature, not lacking anything. But he's also doing that because he wants others to come to him as well because there's others who are not yet part of that first fruit that are yet to respond to Jesus, become followers of his. And that's what he desires. Let's pray together. Father, I just would ask this morning that as we wrestle through these things, that, Father, you would build into us the character of Christ. And that, Father, you would continue to shape us after Jesus. And so, Father, as we wrestle through these trials, that, Father, you would help us to not look for the the cheat, But rather, Father, you would allow those trials to test us to see where we need to grow and how we need to continue to develop, but also allowing those trials to continue to move us closer and closer to walking with you and being shaped after the image of Jesus. And Father, I thank you for the amazingness in all of this, that you just love us like crazy, and you didn't draw us to yourself so that we could flounder and fail. But Father, you drew us to yourself because you loved us and you are seeking that which is best for us. Father, help us to live in that and to embrace that strongly in our journey. Father, I ask these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.